All right, and thank you to Andrew, who brought the word of the Lord to us last week. And uh, I am going to be now continuing on with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. As you may know, during Lent, we um, studied through the Beatitudes, which are the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, at, on Easter, we talked about being salt and light. And now we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount as an application of what it means to be, as the people of God, salt and light. So I want to talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to just kind of back up the lens for a moment before we bring the lens in close for this morning. Um, first of all, I just want to remind us, this is a, a brilliantly crafted discourse which clarifies the true nature of the kingdom into which his followers are being invited to enter. This isn't simply, I mean, in some, you know, you might have some Bibles that have reference notes that say, well, this is for something, an idealistic picture of, of, of the millennial kingdom sometime then and there. But rather, this, that, I, I don't agree with that. I believe that this is a very realistic, concrete illustration of what life in the here and now kingdom is supposed to look like. And so it's very challenging. It's very um, upending. I mean, we talk a lot about this, and you're going to hear these words over and over again. The upside down, inside out kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is upside down than, from our expectations, and it's inside out. It, it, it moves from the inside out, and, and uh, Andrew really got after that last week in a very uh, powerful way, and if you didn't get to hear the message, I encourage you to go online, pick up a CD in the back, or um, PowerPoints, because he really uh, got after that again, uh, particularly out of that Jeremiah 31 passage, and, and uh, how God really does work that inside-outness of his kingdom when he writes his word upon our hearts, all right? So this discourse uh, deals with two major questions that humanity always faces. The first is, how do I be blessed? What does a life look like that is marked by true well-being? Everyone in the world is looking for well-being. I mean, that's what all of, you know, that's what advertising is all about, marketing. Everybody's seeking to try to find what is the way to well-being. And in the Beatitudes, right here at the beginning of this discourse, he gives us the answer, here's what blessedness looks like. So if you want to know how to be blessed, saturate yourself, immerse yourself in the Beatitudes. Let God, as we've been talking about and the word the Lord has put in my heart, hollow a place out in us to receive these Beatitudes, to receive these attitudes of being in us so that we might be blessed. The second question humanity always faces is how to be good. What does a life look like that is marked by true goodness? And the rest of our discourse, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, really unpacks that question for us. And that's what we're going to be spending our time with over the next several months. So we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as it tells us in Matthew 5, 13 and 16. And this describes who we are, we're blessed, and what we are to do goodness, okay? So we're blessed people doing good. And that's why we've talked about in this year of favor, favor isn't just about being blessed, it's about being a blessing. It's about leveraging the favor of God on behalf of a wounded and waiting world. The world is in desperate need of us to be salt and light in the world. Now, 
we looked a couple of weeks ago at this issue of fulfilled, and I want to I'm going to just read this scripture for you again, just to kind of bring us in and remind us of where we are. Do not think that I have come, I'm in verse 17 of Matthew 5, so you can use the Pew Bible in front of you, or you can use your own Bible, go to Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word fulfill is vitally important. It means to complete, to make whole, to to reach towards that proper destination, the destiny towards which these laws and, and, and the words of the prophets were speaking. All right? So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. One way of looking at that would be to say he is the living law and prophet. The law is the course of righteousness, but Jesus is the source of righteousness. He doesn't abolish or set aside the law and the prophets. Rather, he empowers us to find the spirit deep in the law going to the source from which they come. All right? So a lot of times people say, well, you know, I'm a New Testament believer. Well, you can't be a New Testament believer without also being immersed in the Old Testament because the New Testament continually, and Jesus continually refers back to the Old Testament. I mean, it's not like they're two separate parts, one that you get to set aside now and one you just get to... No, they're actually integrally connected with one another, and we understand and recognize here that really Jesus is fulfilling, completing, this law and the prophets, which speaks of the Old Testament as a whole. All right. For I tell you, now, then he goes at the end and he gives this incredible challenge. And I don't know what you want to do with this. I know that I, over the years, have struggled with what do I, how do I, how does my righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's speaking to a crowd which includes Pharisees and teachers of the law, the scribes, the ones who, the scribes are the ones who, um, really wrote and expounded upon the laws, and the, and the uh, Pharisees was a pietistic movement which was seeking to, to live in that place of complete righteousness. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you mean, Jesus? So all, those, all the people in the crowd are starting to scratch their heads, and they're saying, what on earth? How are we going to exceed them? I, you know, i got a life to live. I can't do all of the things that these scribes and the Pharisees are prescribing that we're to do, and that's why they're doing it, and we, we're not because they're doing it for us, or somehow, or we can't possibly live up to that. And sometimes today, and so, so the question becomes, well, is Jesus just simply then, you know, establishing a new legalism, something that's even, even more legalistic than, than that of the Pharisees and that of the um, of the uh, scribes, and I don't believe that that's the answer. Here's how I would like us to 
to think about this this morning. I think this is a way of going deeper into this and understanding Jesus' heart. Our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, the legalists, and the Pharisees, the pietists, not by being enslaved to the law and the prophets, but rather by being fully submitted and surrendered to the living law and prophet Jesus. The key word here is submitted and surrendered to him. You see, God is pleased by loyalty, not legalism. This is how we enter the kingdom, motivated by love, not law. Go back with me for a moment to Jeremiah, verse chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. I was just reading this again uh, yesterday. Just in my own devotional time. Jeremiah 31, 31. So, just remember the 31, 31. In Jeremiah, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Look at that in verse 33. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Well, this is what Jesus is announcing. We just came to the table, and Jesus said, this blood represents the new covenant in my blood. This is the covenant, the covenant that is now inside, not outside. It's not, we don't get to God by our own works or our own ability or our own skills or our own you know, uh, talents or whatever it is or our own pietism or whatever it is, none of that gets us or breaks through that barrier of sin between us and God. But Jesus broke that barrier, broke open the veil, made the way possible, and wrote this now in our hearts. Everybody with me? You got this? Okay. So now... In the next portion of the discourse, Jesus then unpacks what this fulfilled means in six practical applications, which we're going to be looking at over the next many weeks, all right? So um, Andrew looked at the issue of murder, actually the issue of, you know, the underlying issue behind murder, anger, the heart issue. This morning, we're going to be looking at adultery and the heart issue behind that, We're going to be looking at divorce and the heart issue behind that, oaths and the heart issues behind that, retribution and the heart issues behind that, and love for enemies and the heart issues behind those. Okay? Now, here's a couple of things that, just before we get to our passage this morning, a couple more things just to give us context. We're moving from rules and regulations to principles concerning motive and attitude. When Jesus talks about being fulfilled, he's moving from simply external rules and regulations to principles, heart principles, that concern our motive and our attitude. This is where, this is the exceeding part. Unless your righteousness exceeds, because the righteousness that's simply an external, um, uh, you know, sort of a, 
an, an external following of this set of rules and regulations never deals with the underlying issues of motive and attitude because, and Jesus gets at this later, and Andrew unpacked that some more last week about the Pharisees and the whitewashed tombs. Things look great on the outside, but inside, not so much, all right? So, and, and this is, this is I'm, I'm trying to articulate things in a way that will be understandable, not just to you, but to me. I'm trying to get this, okay? So here's another way of looking at it. From a righteousness destination to a journey towards a righteous destiny. See, here's the deal. The, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees actually believed that they could fulfill the law perfectly and therefore be the righteousness of God. They, they, they actually thought that they would be able to do it perfectly. And so then righteousness was a destination which could actually be achieved through their own human effort of keeping the rules and regulations. And Jesus says, mm, not so much. Because you're never going to reach that destination because actually it's a destiny, it's a trajectory in your life of righteousness that God is establishing in us. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And sometimes it makes people uncomfortable because, you know, people, I, I get this. I had conversation um, back a ways with some folks and it was a typical conversation when it came around the church and at the point, that point they didn't know I was a pastor, so that was good. Um, and they just said, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. How many of you have ever heard that? The church is full of hypocrites. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Yeah. And my response is always, well, yeah. <laughs> like this is something new, Revelation? If you define hypocrisy as the gap between where you are and where you will be, or where you should be, or where you're going, there is a gap in everyone. There is a gap between where we are and where we're going. The question is, is that gap narrowing or widening? That's the real question. Are we becoming less hypocritical or more? Because as long as we're human, and as long as the church is filled with human beings, it's going to be filled with hypocrisy. It, like the world isn't filled with hypocrisy? Like it's different out there? You never met any hypocrites out in the world? Right? But that's the difference between a righteousness destination. Because, because if you think, well, the church should be filled with people who have already arrived at the destination and they're perfectly righteous, well, let me know when you find that church and do not join it because it will no longer... You're going to mess it up. I guarantee you, you're going to mess it up. So if you come here and you're still on the journey, welcome to a group of people who are on this together towards a destiny in God. All right. And this, this is a, a critical one. Because we need to move from sort of sin management to discovering and following God's will. It's a different thing. If you're spending all your time simply trying to manage your sin, you're going to miss the richness and the depth and the breadth and the beauty of following God and his will. You know, the kingdom of God, uh, Paul said in Romans uh, 16, you know, is 14, 17, is, is not 
eating and drinking its righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not about sin management. It's about this following him. Okay, so let's go on. I've entitled this message today, True Desire. And so come with me to the next passage here. Matthew chapter 5, thank you, 27 to 30. 5, 27 to 30. So when this comes up, just put up Matthew 5, 27 to 30 at the end there instead, all right? So you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right. Now there's another passage that you know, if you, like, actually read it, you're going to be challenged by it, right? Okay. So I would like to take these remaining moments just to try to unpack, again, remembering that we're moving from rules and regulations to principles, from sin management to following God's will, from a righteous destination to a righteous destiny. Well, what, what do you think Jesus is after here? What is, he, what is he trying to communicate to us here and now 2,000 years later, because he's the living word, so he's got something to speak to us. Well, let's, let's, let's unpack it. Well, first of all, we need to understand what the law says. Exodus 20, 14, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, but I say, okay? So you shall not commit adultery. You've heard this. So everybody on that mountain that day had heard the message of the Ten Commandments and the commandment of Exodus 20, 14, that you shall not commit adultery, which means don't have sexual intercourse with another man's wife. Okay? Do not have sexual intercourse with another man's wife. Now, the living law comes beyond that, and he says, but I tell you that every man who looks at someone else's wife and wants to have sex with her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here the issue, it becomes, do not look with absorbing desire at another man's wife. Get that? Because this is, that's actually what, who looks at. The, the looking at someone, the, the actual Greek here, when you unpack it and go into it, means looking with an absorbing desire. All right? Not a glance, it's an absorbing desire. All right. Well, let's go to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. We're going to get a little picture of this in real time. 2 Samuel 11. All of chapter 11 and 12, but we're just going to read through the first part of it here. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, 
And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her and she, to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Now, we have the issue that starts right at the very beginning. In the spring, at the time that kings go off to war, David is continuing his vacation. Instead of doing what he was called to be doing as the king, he was back just, you know, sitting around, chilling, and looking with absorbing desire. And you know the rest of the story. After she gets pregnant, yep, and then he calls and he brings Uriah back from the war and says, go and sleep with it. You know, he tries to fix it and... Uriah's having none of it because he's a soldier. He knows what he's supposed to be doing. He gets sent back. So David sends him to the front lines at the very front, and he's killed. And then David, ta- and, you know, and then Nathan the prophet comes and says, hmm, I got a little parable to tell you. I got a little story about a little lamb. Okay. So this is, this is the picture of what Jesus is warning us about, David with, that Beth, with Bathsheba and that absorbing desire. So let's just unpack that for a moment. It starts with temptation here. Um, this, this passage is critical. We, we looked at this many months ago when we were studying through James, but I'm just going to bring us back there this morning for a moment. Uh, when tempted, so this is sort of the This is the process by which absorbing desire happens. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation is always present in this life, and it is never prompted by God. It is rooted in our divided hearts and has a consistent growth pattern from seed, the bait, to shoot, which is the desire, to flower, which is the allurement. Notice the progression, people. Notice that in your own life and in your own heart. There's a seed that's put out there. No one should say, God, you know, when, when one is tempted, they, but each person, when tempted, there's there's this allurement that happens. There's this begin, it begins with this, the allurement begins with the temptation, which begins with that seed, that bait that's put out there. It's the bait of Satan. He baits. So, so I've, you've heard this illustration before, but it's such a, a helpful illustration. So one of the ways in Africa that Um, hunters catch monkeys is by doing this. They'll take a coconut and they will drill a hole in it and hollow it out and they will make the hole big enough so that the monkey can put his hand into and they have something that's very enticing to the monkey in the coconut. And so the monkey puts his hand into the coconut and grasps hold of the thing that he wants and when he tries to pull his hand back out of the coconut, he finds that he cannot do so 
because his hand, when it is in a fist, will no longer fit out the hole. Well, that's the bait. The bait is what's in there that the enemy says is something that you really need. And then you desire it, so you go in. And then the allurement is when you begin to hang on to it and don't let go. And it's that inability or unwillingness or disobedience to not surrender or submit yourself that then becomes the place. And then the monkey will hang on to that. Even when the hunter comes, they will not let go. And then they're just sitting, you know, a sitting target for the hunter to come and kill. Well, so it is with sin in our own lives. Let's be honest, right? The temptation itself is not sin. The, The bait itself is not sin. It's when we reach out for that bait and desire it and we begin to be allured. Remember, the the word allurement, if I was a fisherman, I'd probably use a fishing illustration. You know that you use a lure, right, to catch a fish. Well, they see it. It looks really, you know, it's the bait. It's out there. It looks really exciting. I desire that. I grab hold of that. And that's when the problems begin. And it results in death. For David, well, it resulted in Uriah's death, another man's death. All right, so how do we get to victory? Well, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, boy, if we were to follow this literally, there'd be a lot of one-eyed, one-handed people around here, right? (laughs) Including me? Anybody ever struggled in any of the kinds of areas specifically around sexual sin and about, around lust and these kinds of things, which is, you know, as the, as, the, as the book states, you know, every man's battle, right? Probably not a man in this room, right? you know, if you've never struggled with this, God bless you. But for the rest of us who have, right, struggled in the area of, 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 of being, you know, that, that bait and the desire and the allurement. So what do we do? How do we deal with this? Well, and what is Jesus telling us? Well, I think there's a couple things here that are important for us to grab hold of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two pieces here to the victory, and then we're, we're done for this morning, all right? So first of all is we must deal with sin as drastically and radically as necessary and cut off avenues that we know to be unhelpful in cultivating purity of heart. We may even need to sever favorite activities or unwholesome relationships in order to continue moving towards wholeness and enter kingdom life. So, you know, I get teased a lot about my um, lack of computer knowledge. But honestly, one of the things that it actually is very helpful for is I don't, you know, I don't go, I don't have any... There's no internet pornography possibility for me because I'm not even, well, I mean, it's probably possible, but I'm not, I'm not 
enough to even know how to even go or get there. Okay? All right? So, and that doesn't mean I'm so great and strong. It just means, you know, it's one helpful way for me to be clear. Am I being too real? I'm sorry. Is this like too personal or too whatever? You know? Right? So I don't know what it is for you and what it, you know, I mean, each of us, I mean, this isn't about putting on new rules and regulations, but it's about taking care of your heart. Right? Taking care of your heart. It's really, it comes down to these heart issues and not having a divided heart. So for young men, young women, you know, what are you doing? What do you need to say? Is there, is there things that, you know, be really careful. I got ensnared when I was a, a young, young man, when I was a teenager. And it was horrible battle to extract myself. Once you've been ensnared, it's, really, it's, it's a lot easier to stay away than get away once you've been, right? Okay? All right? So moms and dads with your kids, have those conversations. Talk that through. Be, be honest and real at the, at the level that you need to be about the challenges that are there. And this is where relationships, you know, I mean, bad company destroys good character. It does. It corrupts it. It destroys it. You know, who are you hanging out with? If you're hanging out with people who are being disrespectful to people of the opposite gender, you know, that's not going to help you. Right? And don't be, you know, don't be taken in by the lie of the pornography industry that it's, you know, it's harmless and it hurts no one. That's somebody's. That's somebody's daughter. That's someone's sister. Somebody is getting exploited. It's all about the money. Come on. It's all about the money. It's a horrific thing. It's a horrific thing. All right? So don't be... It's, it's not harmless <laughs> by any way, shape, or form. Well, so one, one piece of what I think Jesus is saying very clearly is you got ra- you got to be radical here. It, when it comes to issues of the heart, even more radical than just the rules and regulations, you know, building the fences here. So, but the other piece of this is that we got to go to the heart source of things. And I love that the next part of James 1 might help us here. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. This is right after the the piece that we read earlier about the temptation. And then he says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Well, how on earth is that connected to the temptation piece? And how does that help us with victory? Well, I think in this way. We must also refocus our desire on God's good and perfect gifts. That true desire will produce fruit in our lives that will be salt and light in a wounded and waiting world. So this is one of my prayers. Guys, this is a prayer that I pray. On a regular basis, I pray out of Proverbs where it says, let me have delight in the wife of my youth. Because if I'm in delighting in my wife, If I'm finding my delight in her, then I don't even have to worry about finding delight anywhere else because she's more than enough for me. Okay? 
That's why I spend a lot of time with hubba hubba. My heart going hubba hubba for my wife. And if you're in my household at any time, you know, and my kids will know this, there's, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm making sure that she knows how beautiful and how attractive and desirous she is to me. Not in an inappropriate way, but just a little pat here and there, and you know, it's a little, <laughs> just a little love. How you doing, hon? <laughs> My wife would be, be more introverted and more, uh, yes, person in our household than me, so I'm out here, but nevertheless. But it's true. You know why? Because I want my kids to know how much I love their wife, their, their mom, and how deeply, you know, love and love with her I am. Right? Right? Is that all right? How you doing, Noah? Yeah. <laughs> Katie, am I telling the truth? Yeah? All right. Katie's living with us. She's getting there. Yeah, that's good. Right? Because we just love each other, okay? It's just part of this married life. 32 years in a month, all right? Yeah. And I love her more now than I did 32 years ago. And I deeply, she's deeply attractive to me. All right? But that comes from a heart posture that says, this is, you know, this is the one that God has given to me. All right? So when we refocus our desire, it produces fruit in our lives that'll be salt and light to a wounded and waiting world. So again, it's not, so, you know, if we said right now, I don't want anybody in the room to think about or look at anything that is blue. Don't think about blue. Don't even think about it. Don't look at it. Don't look at blue. Are you looking at blue? Is anybody thinking about blue? I'm not, I'm not thinking about blue right now. Is anybody else thinking about blue? <laughs> blue? Right? If you don't want to think about blue, start thinking about red. Okay? If you don't want to be thinking about that which is impure, start thinking about that which is pure. That's why Philippians says, whatever such things are pure and lovely, things that are good, think on that. Right? So if you're going to get drawn to something that's not, start thinking about something else. All right. So what does David do at the end of the Bathsheba story? Well, he, he repents, and he writes Psalm 51. And one part of Psalm 51, which we've already sang this morning, and thank you, Lynn, for just bringing us right to the altar earlier in the service because God already has been working on the things that we're talking about. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So here's where I think I'd like to close, and I'm actually not going to ask the worship team to come up because we kind of did altar time earlier. 
But I just want to um, close with a, a moment of quiet reflection right now. So just, just for a moment, and I'll give a benediction in a moment, but if you just, right now maybe, and even, I don't know, it helps me with, I, because I'm a physical person, so I know it might not help everybody else, but it certainly helps me sometimes just to get my body engaged. So in a simple way, if you just want to hold your hands before you in an open-handed posture, just open-handed right now, just open hands. We heard a, a word this morning given earlier that came up in prayer about idolatry or things, anything that we're desiring other than him. So we're talking about true desire, and that true desire is for him, but there's, there's lots of other desires that draw our attention or draw our interest, and um, we're just going to take, and right now in the quiet moment here, we're just going to, with our hands open, we're just going to ask him right now to reveal anything in us that needs to be surrendered or submitted to him. There's been any bait. It's become an absorbing desire. It's maybe become an allurement. It's starting to but it's got its hooks in you now. Good news is is Jesus has got a beautiful catch and release program. He wants to catch you and release you. The enemy has a catch and bondage program. Jesus has a catch and release, a catch and freedom program. We welcome you to to go deep. We welcome you, Lord, to cut, to clean, to change transform us. And set us on a path towards a righteous destiny in you. Thank you, God. We stand together for the benediction. Again, if you would just open your hands. And now I pray that you would be filled afresh this very day 
with the immeasurable love of God the Father and the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours. As you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations, go with the banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down every day of your life. Be blessed, people of God. In Jesus' name, amen.